we might believe on the Son. But we don't need to know all things. But we do need to know the things that you've given us. So, Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Father, and a, uh, a mind to understand and perceive um, what you would have for us to believe this morning. God, and by virtue of that, um, what you would have us to do. So, Father, um, there's no doubt that there is some uh, significant and monumental and essential truth contained in this passage. Father, um, and we come to you as a needy people, um, needing to understand, Father, so that it may make us more like your Son. We trust this morning that um, it is your will that we be conformed to the image of your Son. So we trust you this morning and are um, faithfully expecting, uh, joyfully expecting you to accomplish that in Christ through your Spirit. So Father, help me to just be faithful to the text. God, not to, um, not to lean on eloquence or, or skill or craftiness or deceit or um, even any seemingly good virtue. Father, help us this morning. Help me just to lean on the Word and to preach Christ and Him crucified. Father, the suffering servant and the suffering Savior. And God, may you make your people um, more like your Son as a result of it. God, we love and thank you just for the precious nature of the gospel. And what it accomplishes in the hearts and minds of your people. And we thank you for the precious nature of your word. And look forward to what you're going to do, Lord, in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Verse 31, we read these words, and he began to teach them. He began to teach. Jesus begins teaching his disciples in this point. In the previous passage, we saw Peter's monumental confession or profession of faith. Um, we see such a high in the disciples' life. And you may, you may remember that uh, we're about two and a half, two to two and a half years in Jesus Christ's ministry. Um, he's been with his disciples. He's called the twelve. Um, he's prayed with them. He's uh, laid with them. He's taught them. He's discipled them. He's ate with them. Um, he's fellowshiped with them. He's loved them. He's rebuked them. Um, he's done so many things with them. Um, at this point, their knowledge is, is gaining. We're seeing them begin to understand a little bit more as we go throughout the Gospels. And that's really the nature of the Christian life. You know, oftentimes we want to give the disciples such a hard time. Um, but really, what we see is that prior to the cross, and even in the disciples' lives, uh, lives um, they, they need to see something. They need to experience something. They need to see Christ, and they need to see the fullness of His, of His ministry. They need to see the culmination of why He came before they're truly and wonderfully changed, um, uh, which results in a boldness and a courage and a faithfulness um, that's out of this world. Um, up to this point, they don't truly understand. They're like um, what we looked at last week, the blind man who sees but he doesn't see, who understands yet he doesn't fully under, understand. Um, they, don't, they don't quite get it. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. And from a natural perspective, it's somewhat understandable. Um, but at this point, they do make a proclamation, at least Peter does, as a representative of uh, the group of disciples that was that is not yet made, um, in, at least in the Gospel of Mark. You know, I think it's in uh, chapter two that we see the Father proclaim uh, the Christ-like nature and the Messiahship of the Son. We even see the demons throughout the book of Mark proclaim it, um, but we don't see the disciples, at least in a in a um, in a clear-cut 
um, objective way until we get to Mark chapter number 8 in this passage of Scripture. Um, we, do receive, we do see Peter out on the water um, in, in the midst of a storm proclaimed for him to be the Son of God, um, which speaks something of his divine nature. But it's not until this point that we see them recognize that um, not only is he God in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense of substance and nature and divine character, uh, but here we see that um, this relationship to Old Testament prophecies of Messiahship and, Christ, and the, Christ, the office of Christ. Not just Christ's likeness, but the office of Messiah, the office of Christ, the one who would come in human form. Um, but we're going to see in just a moment that um, they have some misunderstandings about what, what that means. But they do believe that He is the Son of God. That's exactly what we read um, in the opening part of Scripture. Um, he asks them and looks at them and says, Who do men say that I am? And uh, some answer John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. I believe uh, Matthew refers to Jeremiah. Um, you know, Nicodemus in John chapter 3 um, clearly states objectively, um, you are one that is from God. Uh, why? Because no man could do the signs that you do unless you were from God. Um, there's just an overwhelming um, uh, proclamation that he is from God. Uh, but that doesn't always necessitate that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ. After all, John was from God. After all, Elijah was from God. Jeremiah was from God. The prophets were from God. Um, and that's what they allude to. And then he says to them, okay, uh, I don't so much care about what they think. What do you think? You know, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that great profession of faith. You are the Christ. Then he strictly warns them that they should tell no one about him. So he understands something of the nature of God, something of the nature of Christ, and something of the nature of his office as far as coming to be um, the Old Testament fulfillment of the victorious Savior. Um, although there's going to be some misunderstanding about what that means, um, Peter and the disciples are going to fall into the category of so many others who define the role of Christ for him and what they think that a Savior should be and what they think a Savior should look like and the work that should be accomplished. So they understanding something of the character of God. They understand something even as Jesus of the character of God. So Jesus, um, at this point, um, seeks to build upon that foundation. Um, and I think it's clear here that the disciples believe. They believe, again, He's the Messiah. They believe He's the Christ. They believe He's the Anointed One. They're, just they're not so much confused about the person. They're confused about His work. So, He takes the opportunity to teach them, to give them further revelation, to build upon what they already know. And now it's clear. You know, in verse number 32, you read a word that He spoke the word openly. Um, that's the New King James. You may have a translation that says plainly. And the word can also mean confidently or boldly. Um, uh, if you remember, in past days, our Lord spoke how? In parables. There were reasons for that. We talked about that. Um, it was discriminating. It was to separate. It was a way of just separating between the sheep and the goats. It was a way of speaking somewhat secretively to the people of God, to the disciples, in a way that others wouldn't understand. Um, other places you would find Him speak, not only parabolically, but symbolically, metaphorically. Um, his works would be, in a sense, metaphorical or symbolic of kingdom life. 
They were, they were real and they were literal, but they were symbolic and metaphoric of what, a king, of what the, the true kingdom would be one day and what it is in some sense already, but not fully consummated. Uh, and now they understand that. They get it. They understand at least some of that. Um, so all of the parabolic, all of the symbolic, and all of the metaphorical language at this point seems, uh, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it, um, seems to go out the window and gives way to clear, plain, simple truth. Now they can see like the blind man. Um, so Jesus lays before them and speaks plainly, openly, clearly. They see clearly like the blind man previously. So Jesus lays it out clearly to them. No more parables, men. You know, it's two and a half years. You understand something about my nature, something about my character, something about my work. Um, he just lays it out plainly. He begins to teach them plainly that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Um, I would just draw your attention to the significance of the term Son of Man. I'm in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. There's no doubt. Daniel uses it uniquely um, to speak of a coming Messiah. Um, a man uh, who would come, a son of man, uh, uh, someone born of the seed of a woman um, who would come and enter into the world. And when you read in that passage, it's not quite as clear that a suffering Savior would come, but a Savior nonetheless, one who would um, lead the way and establish a kingdom of, of all nations, tribes, tongues, and people. He would go up to the Ancient of Days, the Father, and the Father would give him a kingdom for the work that he accomplished on their behalf. And it would be uh, born out of that, and it would be established out of every nation, tribe, and tongue that Jesus Christ identifies himself here as the Old Testament fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. But I think there's more than that in this term, Son of Man. It's actually Jesus' favorite um, self-identifying term out of all the terms and titles that um, the Scriptures give Him, particularly in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus gives Himself this title more than any other. There was a Scottish theologian uh, by the name of George Smeaton that says... Quote, when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he plainly taught under certain measure of disguise that he was the second man or the second Adam who was to bruise the serpent's head or in other words, to destroy the works of the devil. That the Son of Man would come, yes, in flaming fire like in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, but Old Testament, but, but other prophecies and Jesus himself um, is going to here teach how that would be accomplished. That he would take the role of Son of Man or the seed of a woman, or the man of very man, 100% God, truly man, or truly God and truly man, that he would enter in, as Hebrews tells us, and become like a man in every point. He would be the seed of a woman, and he would do everything that a man should do, and everything that a man wouldn't do, and everything that Adam couldn't do. Um, why? So that he could give everything that man couldn't accomplish. That he would become like us in every point. That he would be the fulfillment of that first initial gospel in Genesis 3.15, that after the fall happened, um, the seed of a woman would be born and he would crush the head of the serpent. That is 1 Corinthians 15. And Romans chapter 5 tell us that he is the second Adam, that he is the second born of God, not of woman, created, covenanted with, um, that would earn our salvation for us. He would accomplish what we could not accomplish how would he do that the text tells us that he taught them that the son of man and he identifies himself as the son of man he lays it plainly what must he do he must suffer many things he must um, he must if you're in the habit of writing your bible highlighting and circling I, I encourage that i don't think it's desecrating the text 
Um, but I would highlight that word must. Must. Um, it's a very emphatic word in the original and it should be emphatic in our thinking that there is a necessity laid upon the Son of Man to suffer many things. This is common in Christ's teaching. Um, Luke chapter 24 and verse 25, we meet uh, some, a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus has already uh, been dead, buried, and resurrected. And uh, he meets a couple of guys on the road to uh, of Emmaus, um, some disciples who are very discouraged and downtrodden. And uh, it culminates in this. Um, Jesus looks at them and he says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? questions them. Everything that you know about the prophets, everything that you know about the Old Testament, everything that you know about the law, everything that you know about Moses, do you not understand that, that Christ must have suffered? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, the text says, He expounded to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning, quote, Himself. Some people argue about Jesus Christ. Some people argue about God. Some people argue even within Christianity about other possibilities, about other um, necessity. That, that, you know, and the theoretical at best and just uh, lies at worst. You know, that there were other ways that God could have done something different, that God could have went another way and that God doesn't uh, go other ways today. Um, I argue today that there was no other possibility. He must. It was a necessity. It was laid upon Him. If man was to be saved, if mankind was to be um, saved, if any man in the world was to be um, gloriously delivered, it would be only solely 100% by the work of Christ. Verse number 44 in that same passage, he says to them um, at the end of his discourse, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding. He made a blind man see that they might comprehend the Scriptures is what it says. Jesus takes them to the text. He takes them to the Old Testament Scriptures and He says that this was spoken of all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the prophets, all throughout the Psalms, and all throughout Moses' teaching. That it was necessity was laid upon Him because this is what God taught. This was His Word. It must have happened. Jesus understood His mission. There's a sense in which necessity was laid upon him um, because of the Old Testament scriptures prophesied. But in a sense, it, I think it was more than that. I think it was more than that. I think the Old Testament scriptures prophesied. I mean, it had to be fulfilled not because it prescribed Jesus coming and laid out what he would do. Um, I think the must is there because of who he is. I think the Old Testament prophesied it and laid it out and prescribed it because that's by nature who God was. Right? That is just foretelling what God had already determined in time past because that is who He was. That necessity is laid upon Him uh, not because it was merely prophesied and Jesus comes and just fulfills um, the black and white do's and don'ts of what God the Father had prescribed, um, but willingly He comes because that's who He is. Necessity is laid upon the Christ because the Christ is by nature, John tells us, love. Herein is love. And God is love. Here in His compassion, and God is compassion. And um, necessity is laid upon Him because that's who He is. Right? When He looked at the multitudes, He was moved with compassion. He acted and He worked, not because um, God the Father said, you need to do that, son. You know, Like, hang on a second, you need to stop right there. 
you know, like I do with my sons sometimes, you know, and redirect their thoughts and their thinking. And they're like, hey, we need to talk about this for just a moment. Like, I know that you have uh, great ideas for ministry, you know, and you want to establish the kingdom, but wait just a moment. You know, we need to talk about those that you just, you're about to pass by. Now, Jesus was moved with compassion because that's who he was. And isn't that just like phenomenal to think about it, to think about God who knew everything that was in man, who knew everything that man was. Have you ever thought about that? The compassion of our Lord, it just, it just boggles my mind. I thank God for going through the book of Mark, if nothing else, for this reason. You know, you get to look into the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the, the overwhelming testimony of the Gospels. Now, I know He's holy, and I know He's righteous, and I know He's pure, and I know He's blameless. And I know that, um, that, that, that one day is coming, a day in which a sword will come out like a flame of fire out of His mouth, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess. But the overwhelming testimony of the, the man Christ Jesus throughout the Gospels is that He looks out, and, and those things do not um, inherently provoke um, um, a judgment upon mankind. Otherwise, every man that he walked past would be dead. But the overwhelming characteristic is compassion. It is just he's moved in his bowels because that's who he is that provokes him to activity, to move not away from man, but to man. And the thing that is phenomenal about that is that he knows everything that is in man. You know? Like I thought about this a couple of weeks ago and I thought, I thank God that I'm not omniscient. You know, I am so thankful to God that I am omniscient. I am not omniscient. I don't want to know all things, you know. I remember one time uh, working with a coworker, and just curiosity, just it overwhelms you when you don't know, you know. Curiosity kills the cat, right? It does, and all of us by nature are just so curious, and we want to know everything. I remember one time he was off for weeks, and every one of us in the in the in the lab were just wondering. He's a he's a he's a faithful friend. He's a, he's he's a brother in Christ, and I'm just worried about him. And I'm just like just trying to provoke, and he's just like leave it alone, leave it alone, you know. Uh, I'm just worried about him, but but part of me just wanted to know, like why are you out? And I remember finding out why he hadn't been there in weeks, you know, and um, and uh, it just highlighted the depravity of man. And I thought, you know, he said, you didn't want to know. And, you know, I didn't want to know. Part of you wants to know so you can be there and you can suffer with, but part of you doesn't want to know um, because it just highlights the depravity of man and the things that go on behind the scenes, you know. Can you imagine Jesus Christ walking throughout the world and knowing um, everything that is in the heart of a man, you know? Um, you find out, you know, you think about po- police officers and FBI and other people, you know, when they find out certain things, they're obligated to do certain things with certain information and they rush in and they, they save the day or they put people in jail or they, they put behind bars criminals. And you think about the Lord Jesus Christ walking along and knowing the heart of every man, the depravity that lies within, the, 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 the sin and the, and the utter wickedness that if, if, if there wasn't moral constraints and if there wasn't the restraint of God, um, that, that that Hitler would not be an anomaly in world history. Um, he would be uh, just one of the boys, you know. That that without the unrestrained moral character of God and the and the governing powers and fathers and mothers and just the law of God written upon the conscience of men. And you think about it, he walks around every single day with that knowledge, and it doesn't provoke him in that moment away from them. It doesn't provoke judgment. He's patient and he's long-suffering and it, and it provokes him to move towards them. And I thank God that... I think that if we were omniscient in the humanity that we are, 
and the frailty and the fragile nature of our mind, I think it would crush us to know all the things that God knows. Um, and that if we did know those things, oh, the things that we would do with that knowledge that He would not do. Instead of the things that we would do, what does He do? He, he determines to suffer instead. You know? When we would have lost self-control and risen a right hand of vengeance, God the Father sends God the Son by the power of the God, the Holy Spirit, to become a man like we are, knowing everything that we are, and He decides that He is going to suffer. It's unthinkable. It's untenable in our minds and our thinking. But He, he determines to do it. The omniscient one. Thank God I'm not omniscient. And even in the Christian life, He gives us faith to guard us from all the knowledge. And He keeps it to Himself like a father um, who knows all of the stresses of life and things, but He doesn't tell His Son all things um, and protects them from that. And the Christian life is often like that. He carries the weight. He carries the burden. He doesn't ask us to carry all things. He doesn't want us to carry all things. He's the suffering Savior who come into the world to carry the things that we can't carry because He knows of our frailty and our fragile minds. What a Savior who chose to suffer many things. That's the extent of the things that He suffered. Many things speak of the totality and the comprehensive nature of all the things that the Messiah, God of very God, the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent one who would come into the world and He would suffer. Think about that. God suffering many things. And the sufferings often throughout the text um, refer to um, um, God in the totality or Christ in the totality, uh, or not in the totality, but the, but, but, but the cross. Uh, but here I want to say he suffered not only that, he suffered many things. That the sufferings of Christ did not begin um, it, with the arrest in the garden. That we need to think that, that, that it, didn't, it didn't begin and culminate even, uh, it may have culminated at the cross, but it didn't begin as he stood before Pilate. It didn't begin as Judas sells him uh, for 30 pieces of silver and he's led to Calvary. Um, but the sufferings of Christ began far before that. Um, as he gestated nine months in his mother's womb, and he subjected himself to things that he never should have had to be before. We think about although he was rich, the scripture says that he became poor for our, our sakes. What kind of suffering was it? Um, here he speaks, culminates in the rejection of the Messiah. That's what it says in the text. Um, that he was rejected. They suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and. After that, three days he would rise again. That he would be rejected, he would be disapproved, he would be repudiated, he would be disallowed is what the text, is what the term means. And many of you know what rejection feels like. Welcome to the world. Oftentimes it's worse than even death. Right? Psalm 118.22 says that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Peter alludes to that later and many of the um, gospel writers and the apostles refer to that fact that there was a cornerstone that was rejected. Um, a stone that was laid before men. And many of you know that in building, uh, in, in, in ancient days, there was, a there was a cornerstone that would be the chief cornerstone that the rest of the stones would be laid. And imagine um, like in the Old Testament Scriptures um, that, that this, the corrupt nature of the Levitical priesthood, that God would require a perfect lamb and they would bring a perfect lamb often. Um, but, but the Levitical priesthood would become so corrupt that they would take the lamb and they would reject it um, sometimes. 
The same with the chief cornerstone. It's perfect in all of its ways. But for some reason, whatever reason in their own hearts, they reject the perfection of the stone and thus offer themselves their own stone and their own lamb and their own sacrifice um, for whatever and every reason that man could conjure up, thus um, trying to earn his status before God. Isaiah 53.2, we read at the opening of the passage, or at the opening of the service, for he'll grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's just a man. And he's, it says he's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As we hid, as it were, our faces from him, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It tells of a Messiah that would be cut off, a Messiah that would be buried, a Messiah that would bear the transgressions of His people. Who would He be rejected by? The text in Mark tells us, by everyone. Isaiah tells us everyone, pretty much. The elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. This list comprises the three main power groups in the nation of Israel. Um, and, and, and them, them together, it, it culminates in this. It's pretty much everyone. The list together here makes it clear that there's a comprehensive rejection of Jesus by all the leading representatives of God's people. Thus that we can say, when they rejected the Christ, Israel rejected the Christ. And thus it, um, yeah, it culminates in His rejection. Thus He would suffer. He would be killed. He would suffer many things. What is it to suffer? I don't think that needs to be explained. Or maybe it does. I think we all recognize suffering. And that's why he must suffer. The Heidelberg Catechism, verse, uh, 30, question 37, asks this question, what does it mean that he suffered? And this is the answer they gave. That all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against sin of the whole human race. In order that by his passion as the only atoning sacrifice. He might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. That great theologian George Smeaton says this as well, the whole texture of Christ's life may be said to consist of suffering, sorrow, and bitterness. As the curse had diffused itself through every scene of life, not a sphere can be measured or a moment thought of in which He did not as the surety of sinners feel more or less the bitter ingredients of the cup of woe which must otherwise oppress His people forever. End quote. The idea being that, yes, the culmination happened upon the cross, but as He lived for 33 years, He condescended to our level and that was in some sense a moment. Every single moment that He lived on earth was, was more suffering than He should have or had to have endured. And why did He do it? Why did He subject Himself not only to the cross, um, but, but, but to, to Rome and to Israel, but also to just the human form. that, that Just submitting Himself to the humanity as the Son of Man was in some sense a suffering upon the Christ as He subjects Himself to things that He ought not have ever had to subject Himself for, but joyfully, willfully did. Why? So that He could endure the wrath of God for sinners like us. He must. Why? Because that is by nature who He is. There's a hymn by the name of O Sacred Head, 
And it goes like this. O sacred head now wounded with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thine only crown. O sacred head, what glory, what bliss till now was thine, yet though despised and gory, I joy to call thee mine. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, Tis I deserve thy place, and grant to me thy grace. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end? O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me be, let me never, never outlive my love to thee. What phenomenal words speaking of the suffering. The suffering of Christ, which is not metaphorical. The suffering of Christ, which is not symbolic. The, the suffering of Christ, which is not parabolic. It's not some, um, some clothed truth now. He now lays it before them clearly, plainly, boldly, confidently that Jesus Christ would enter into the world that the Son of Man would subject Himself to humanity, that He would not guard Himself. He would not enter into the world as a royal authority of whom He would gain nationalistic favor and overturn the nation and the worlds and build up His kingdom. He wouldn't guard Himself in an ivory tower as a royal king, although He even had the authority and the right to do that. But He would enter into life. He would be tempted like we are. He would be what we should be and he became what we are um, and God would suffer God would suffer suffering endured suffering not out of not because of his God would endure suffering not because of the consequences of his own sin but because of ours and that's what the text says don't you think that as they sat there utterly astonished and speechless at the wonder and the glory of such unmatched and immeasurable love and grace displayed in the drama that He unfolds before their eyes, that they have eyes to see. He lays it out so plainly as we lay it out here this morning that don't you think that they can't deny that they understand it, right? Doesn't it just intrigue you or in them, shouldn't it intrigue them of how um, they must have responded to such glory as the Father allows them, as the Son allows them and, and, and kind of pulls back the veil for just a moment for them to, 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 to peer into the glories of the suffering Savior. Can you imagine the love and the gratitude that have must have permeated their hearts as, as, as Christ, the Son of God, God of very God, um, pulls back like in the, 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 on the Mount of the Transfiguration and lets them see some glory that no other man has seen before. Shouldn't it just, can you imagine the gratitude that it must have permeated permeated their hearts. But if that's what you thought, you were wrong. So you read in verse number 33, or verse number 32, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Began to rebuke him. Peter, the scholar in residence among the disciples, leads the way in defiance of the Son of God. Um, Peter takes him aside and 
rebukes him. You know, the, the, the painting of the scenario may even be something like this. You know, the, the, the term there, he began to teach, or the phrase, is a phrase that, can, that, that means he began to teach and there was a process of teaching. And the idea could very well be um, that as Jesus Christ is in the midst of his teaching and talking about the suffering and the fact that he would die in three days, he would rise again, it could be um, very well that as, as, as Jesus Christ is teaching, Peter stands up or he raises his hand and he comes up to the Lord or he whispers in his ear and he's like, I need to talk to you for just a minute, you know? Um, as he's going to respond to his sermon, his clear, plain teaching, um, and he's going to take him. The text says that he took him aside. And he began to rebuke him. The term rebuke here um, is a very strong term, a very emphatic term that oftentimes, most often, more often than not, throughout the text of, of Scripture or the New Testament is used of rebuking demons. Um, it's the worst and most ultimate form of evil. And that may be actually why Jesus Christ responds in some part the way that He does. And they're going to go tit for tat here. And Peter's going to rebuke him and say, That's someone, that, that may even be demonic. I, I, that, that, that will never happen, Lord, um, to Jesus. And Jesus will return and say, No, Peter, that will never happen. You sit down um, in some sense. Peter, the hard-headed, self-willed disciple, um, the one who always puts his foot in his mouth here, uh, puts his foot in his mouth. And it may just well be pride. It may be misunderstanding. I think there's probably some love there and compassion for our Lord. And, and he couldn't understand and see that his Savior, um, that the Son of God would, um, would, would, would have to go such a route. Is there not some other way? Is there not other possibilities? Um, can we think about this? Can we talk about this? Um, but it wasn't even that. It was more like, no, Lord, um, that's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen um, in the coming months. Peter, who was on a mountaintop just a moment ago, you know, who's probably receiving accolades and commendation from his peers for getting the answer to the, the quiz right. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God in Matthew. Thou hast well said, Peter. Um, but it wasn't come from you. Uh, it didn't come from flesh and blood, but my Father revealed it unto you. And uh, how even spiritual commendation sometimes can offer pride and confidence that is uncalled for uh, maybe that led to the, re the rebuke. Not today, Lord. Matthew 16, uh, 22. And Peter actually, you get the content of his rebuke. He says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Exclamation. Literally, it could be translated, Mercy to you, Lord God forbid. No, 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 no. This shall not happen. You know? You get the life in the you get, you get kind of glimpse in the Christian life, right? Peter saw, but he didn't see. Jesus was the Messiah, yes. He was the Christ. He understood something of the person and His divine nature, but not His plan and definitely not His work. And from a natural perspective, you could really see how this is an understandable conclusion. You know, Jesus doesn't really exhibit the stereotypical Judaistic uh, Messianic authority. I mean, He doesn't come in with um, you know, a cart and horse and chariot with an army behind Him. He doesn't take royal dominion. He doesn't establish His throne right then. He doesn't purify the temple. He doesn't throw out the scribes and the Pharisees. He doesn't expel the Gentiles, those pagan dogs from Jewish life. Um, rather, it's rooted simply in his, his dominion's rooted simply in who He is. Um, it's God's Son. He, you know, he, he constitutes the twelve. He interprets God's commandments. He speaks for God. He presumes to forgive sins. He has power over nature. But um, so, so he's more like a prophet and not like God. A prophet who is um, ready to be rebuked. Or maybe he's the common 
crazy man who thinks he's, he's God. Not only is Jesus not fit into the Messianic stereotype, but um, he defines his mission in uh, contrast to it. He comes here and he says that the meaning of his life and mission is not about victory or success here and now, but about rejection, about suffering, and about death. And that's the rub. And Jesus finally speaks, the Son of Man must suffer many things. You know, this wasn't a thought. This wasn't a pattern of thinking. Um, what Jesus is teaching in the realm of Judaism. You know, never in Israel was it heard that we can tell that the Messiah should suffer, that He should enter in. Um, sure, so, so Isaiah speaks something of it, but, um, but it wasn't interpreted that way by most of Judaism. Isaiah 33 wouldn't have looked at the coming Messiah like that, and today they don't interpret it in that way either. Um, another, um, the, the prediction of Jesus' passion is an anomaly, even in some sense, to the disciples. That's why um, they don't under, understand that He should suffer many things. What does this cause in our Lord? It causes a rebuke. You know, one rebuke uh, turned with another rebuke. And that's what we read in verse 33. But when He had turned around and looked at His disciples, He rebuked Peter. So it could be that is in the midst of His rebuke. And it could also be here that um, Jesus turning around to His disciples um, and looking at His disciples um, understands that Peter is not just alone and he's not just a rogue, but he's representative of the group. Um, He's a representative of um, the disciples. It very well could be that um, the disciples were very much on board with what Peter was saying. And that's why he turns from Peter Um, And just doesn't rebuke him solely, but looks at the disciples because they very likely, if not all of them, at least most of them, would have jumped on board and said, Peter's right. You know, Um, you know, don't just give Peter a hard time. Peter was a representative and the scribes and the Pharisees and the uh, elders of Israel were representative of the nation. All my all of us have are like sheep and we have gone astray. You know, don't stand up with pride and with, uh, you know, with uh, arrogance and think, man, if I'd have been there, I'd have done something different, you know. Um, these are representative pretty much of all mankind. And that's why at the cross you find Jesus there practically alone, even His disciples. So Jesus turns and He rebukes Him. He looks at His disciples um, who probably concur, con, con, concurred with Peter and, um, and rebukes them. And this does have a satanic feel to it in this rebuke. Not satanic on Jesus' part, but literally the rebuke is because they're being satanic. Uh, Verse number 33, get behind me, Satan, is the content of Christ's rebuke. Man, that's harsh. That's rough, right? But but, but here's the point. You may remember in Matthew chapter 4, what does Satan do? Satan tempts our Lord Jesus Christ three different times with bread, um, and it culminates in the end as... The, the, the Satan himself takes Jesus to the pinnacle of a temple and says, if you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything, right? Like that's the content of the temptation. That's the content of the test. And um, Jesus uh, just re- re- repeats Scripture um, right back to him and says, you, you shall worship the Lord your God, and nobody shall worship God but, uh, or worship anyone but God. Um, but what was the content of the, te- of the test? What was the temptation? To give Christ the kingdoms of the world without suffering. That was it. That was it. 
You know, you come into the world, you want to be a king, you want to have nations, every tribe, people, and tongue. Um, you, want, you want the kingdom. Um, Satan stands up and he says, I offer it to you today. Bow down and worship me and I'll give you coast to coast. I will give you sea to sea. I will give you every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. Peter, what does he offer? What does he argue for? What is his rebuke? What did he take Jesus aside for? Why? To give him, or to, 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 to argue, to take Satan upon that offer. In some sense, it doesn't need to be this way, you know. We don't need to lose your life. Like I know something about the content of your character, your nature, your omnipotence. I saw what you did on the sea, man. You know, I saw what you did with the lame man. I saw what you did with the blind man. Isn't there some other way? It doesn't have to be this, Lord. May God forbid. God forbid. How about we take Satan upon that offer? Thus, he looks at Peter and sees the spirit of Satan in his hearts and he rebukes him why because it's necessary that christ must suffer but if it was necessary that christ must suffer so was it demonic satanic to think or to do anything else of the sort why because the suffering would be the means by which christ would accomplish the unthinkable and unattainable work otherwise so as he rebukes Satan for it, and here he rebukes Peter for it. He identifies Peter of having a thought life or a pattern of life of the same substance as the devil himself. Thus he rebukes him. In Peter's mind, he believed that Jesus was the Messiah who could secure the victory, but that that victory should and would be secured without suffering. And since he was arguing for a crown without a cross, a victory without death, in Matthew's account, Jesus looks at him and says, you're a stumbling block to me. Peter, you know, I'm the rock, Petros, little stone. Today I trip over you. And so do the disciples. And so does every other man. If you think that that's the way that this is going to go down, you know, it's satanic. What was Peter's problem? And the text tells us, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The term they're thinking or mindful, um, it refers to a, a not just a single thought, but a formulation of patterns of thinking. Now, it's more than just a, a thought that entered into Peter's mind, but it's more of a thought that's representative and a pattern of thinking. Uh, Peter's mind was operating in conjunction with fallen humanity and a natural mindset. And according to the natural capacity, this is the way he had been thinking for some time. It was a pattern that uh, because of the thoughts that he had been thinking, it became a habit that that was the way that his natural um, thought life was. But the Scriptures were plain. Peter, the Scriptures are plain. That's why he goes in Luke chapter 22 to the, or 24 to the, the disciples and he does hear as well. That they, they, they continue to misunderstand and they don't, they don't get it. Even over in Matthew chapter uh, 9, or Mark chapter 9 and verse number 9 and 10, it says, so they kept this word to themselves questioning what the rising of the dead meant. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. So Jesus is driving it home clearly and plainly. And like in Luke 24, He takes them to the Old Testament Scriptures and lays it out that they may have understanding and that they may see. He takes them to places like Isaiah where it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Peter, don't you understand? Psalm chapter 1, 18 and verse 22, that the chief cornerstone would be rejected and that this wasn't just Jesus' plan, that this was the Father's. The very next verse of that says, um, this was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. 
That this is Jehovah's doing. That this is marvelous in the Trinity's sight. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That this was the plan of God. Who killed Jesus? God did. The Father did as He pours the wrath out upon Him. This was the plan of God from out the ages. You know, and Peter will one day get it. <laughs> you know, he will one day understand. In Acts 2.23, he will preach a gospel message post-resurrection and ascension that says this, him, speaking of Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put together, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible that he should be held by it. <laughs> that at that point, he not only understands the theology of the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, but he understands Isaiah 53. He understands um, Psalm 22. And in Isaiah 20, or 53, when he says that he will, give a, he will give him a portion with the great, that he will see his seed and he shall prolong his days that in, uh, that in Ephesians we understand that, that Christ would be exalted to the right hand of God the Father, that He would receive a name which is above every name, that in the name of Christ uh, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, that, 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 that because of His obedience, um, the, 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 the atonement, His blood would be accepted by the Father. How do we know that? By the resurrection and the ascension. And now He's at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. Peter would understand it. He didn't understand it here. He, he could see, but he couldn't see. He was blind, yet he wasn't blind. Um, he understood, yet he didn't understand. But later on, he will. He, under, he, under, he will understand. And Peter will have one of the greatest theologies of suffering of all the apostles. Um, Paul um, would rival Paul's. When you go to 1 Peter and you go to 2 Peter, the entirety of the text is about suffering. Here he does not understand. But as he labors with Christ and comes alongside him, eventually one day he will. Peter did not understand the necessity or the goodness of suffering. He did not understand the theology of the cross. You know, um, there's an Orthodox Presbyterian um, by the name of uh, Carl Truman whom I read an a, um, article this week on about Luther. Many of you know Luther, Martin Luther, the 1500s. Um, was just a flame of fire and God used him, you know, among many other men. Um, prior to and post, um, Luther often gets the credit, probably more credit than, you know, um, in reference to other men than... than and needed. We often forget other men, um, but um, part of it is is because history records him a lot more and a lot more of his writings and what he did. Um, but in the article, um, he argues that Luther, one of the one of the most glorious contributions that Luther gave to the church um, in his period time period, and he gave to us, um, was a theological perspective, and that I think is biblical. Um, that he refers to as the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. It was formulated uh, in 1518 in his studies. Of course, this would be after the door at Wittenberg. He would be in Heidelberg, and he would give many discourses. He was going to task with the Roman Catholic Church. And at the heart of this new theology was the notion that God reveals himself under the opposite. Under the opposite. Peter wouldn't understand this. Maybe we don't understand this in its fullness. But this is the glory of the cross. And to express it another way, God achieves, Carl Truman writes, God achieves His intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of what, it, what which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is the cross itself. How God triumphs over sin and evil 
by allowing sin and evil to triumph apparently over Him. His real strength, God's real strength and true strength, His omnipotence is demonstrated through apparent weakness. And this, way of, uh, this, is, this was the way that a theologian of the cross would think about God is what he argued. The opposite of that would be a theologian of glory. And I know the way that we use glory, we often think of God's glory. In this context, Luther would argue that a theologian of glory was talking about man's glory. And in simple terms, he says that the theologian of glory assumed that there was a basic continuity between the way the world is and the way God is. And that if strength is demonstrated through raw power on earth, then God's strength must be the same only extended to infinity. To such a theologian, the cross is simply foolishness. It's a piece of nonsense. Why? Because if we know power this way, through human kings and through human authority, and we relate that, then God must act in the same way. So when Jesus Christ comes as Messiah, um, a a theology of glory would say that He must come as other kings have came before them in royal power. And seizing the nations, and while he may do that, and while he will do that one day, that was not the way that he operated in time and history two thousand years ago in suffering. Um, and you'd see this not only in that, but in so many other things. Um, it wouldn't just be reduced to justification by grace alone. In fact, this is all throughout God's character and the way that He operates in the world. Um, the inside itself would be inseparable from the notion um, of the way God operates many times. Um, you know, it's the way many people talk about ministry today. Um, they would often indicate an attitude of power and influence that sees things as, um, you know, progress, as media appearances, as market share, as aesthetics, as youth culture, as um, a number of things, a way to market the church. That this is the way that we understand it, therefore, that's the way we must operate. And these are, um, uh, Carl Truman writes, these are more surely akin to those that Luther would have regarded as symptomatic of the presence and influence of the theologians of glory rather than the cross. That most churches today, or that many churches today, maybe not most churches, but many churches today, and us as a, as a people, whether we're talking about promoting the church or even promoting our own lives, um, think that God must and should act in particular ways that are in opposition to the way that God actually works and, and, um, and, and stretches forth His arm, arm of omnipotence. That an abstract, he goes on to say an abstract of theology of the cross can quite easily be packaged and marketed by a theologian of glory. And this is not to point the finger at them. In fact, if we're honest, most of us feel the attraction of being theologians of glory. Not surprising, given that being a theologian of glory is the default position for fallen human nature. And the way to move from one would be to a theologian of the cross would be of repentance, Right? He goes on to say that giving a whole new understanding of Christian, this gives a whole new understanding of Christian authority. For example, elders are not to be those renowned for throwing their weight around, for badgering others, and for using their position or wealth or credentials to enforce their own opinions. No, truly the Christian elder is the one who devotes his whole life to the painful, inconvenient, humiliating service of others. For in doing so, he demonstrates Christ-like authority the kind of authority that Christ Himself demonstrated throughout His incarnate life and supremely on the cross at Calvary. End quote. The idea being that the Bible is very explicit that Christian power comes not through strength but in weakness. That the way that Christ exalts and expands His kingdom is not through overpowering and taking the world by force and building up a kingdom and establishing a nationalistic political type of entity 
But that if that is ever going to happen, that the greatest amount of Christian influence is to be Christ-like and to follow His example in a theology of the cross that Christian life and kingdom and gospel goes forth not through the strength of a man's arm, but through His suffering. That through His suffering, through His weakness, through His inability, that gospel proclamation does not come through eloquence and great orators, quote the Apostle Paul, but it comes through faithful exegesis and exhibition and leaning upon the text of Scripture. That, and, and it does the work, not us. That we are merely vessels of honor and glory to throw ourselves upon the cross. You say, man, that's tough. Yeah. With that comes a lot of opposition. With that comes a lot of uh, persecution. Yes, with that comes. And with that comes the kingdom. Because that's the way the kingdom comes. It comes through the cross. Peter tells us that more than anything. Peter before who argues, you know, Christ, you must not suffer. (laughs) All throughout the book of Acts and all throughout his epistles are going to offer for the very opposite. Why? Because now he which did not understand understands. And he which could not see could not see. That had Christ not suffered, um, Paul and Peter tell us that um, so many things, Paul, you know, uh, that the suffering of the cross must be for God's glory first, and it must be for man's good. Peter, you think this is for God's glory, and you think this is for your good, but you don't understand that this does not glorify God, it's demonic, and it is not for your good. That had Christ not suffered, we would remain dead in our sins, is the culmination of the New Testament scriptures. Right? Had Christ not suffered, John would have been wrong. All right, my little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Why, John? Um, why? Because he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but for the whole world. That the sufferings of Christ culminated not only in his death, but accrued a life that, that, that was extended to you and I in righteousness upon faith and repentance. Praise God that if Christ had not died, risen, resurrected on that third day, and ascended at the right hand of the Father, you better believe that every person that has ever entered into the world will still be dead in your sins, would be dead in their sins, and you would as well. Peter, what do you think about that? He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. For you were like sheep going astray, Peter says, but have now turned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were all lost. Jesus Christ looked at you and had compassion because you were sheep and there's no shepherd. And thus by dying and giving his life, you were healed. And you who were like sheep, he says, going astray, have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust. Had Christ not suffered, we would remain dead in our sins. Had Christ not suffered, we would remain alive in our sins. Let's say that he could save us. Um, but through his sufferings, um, Romans 6.1 says that because he died, that we now can die to sin practically. That as we live in Christ, that you and I have the power um, have been given dominion over our sins and freed from that sin so now that we can walk and live in righteousness. Romans 6.6, 6, the old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. He goes on to say, present your members not as instruments of unrighteousness but as members of righteousness. Jesus Christ not only in His sufferings and the culmination of His death 
um, did away with the entirety of body of sin and thus saved you. But he practically gives you the power and ability as he frees you from bondage of sin now to live unto God, unto righteousness as you present yourself at, to him and your members to him. That now, you listen, you have the ability by God's power through his sufferings to mortify and kill lust in your hearts and souls. That bitterness and that unforgiveness and that pride and that arrogance that some of you have been living with and we live with every single day, we become hopeless. Don't be hopeless. Christ died and He suffered that you may live not only eternally, but practically righteously in this life. Peter, do you understand what you're arguing for when you argue for a a theology of glory? That there's some other way? It must be. Why? Because, Because in order to save... I must suffer for them in order for them to live righteously. I must suffer as they did. Had Christ not suffered, we would also remain alone in our sins. We would also remain alone in our sins. Can you imagine a Christian life where Jesus Christ saves you and tells you to live righteously, yet um, He will not walk with you? Um, Hebrews 2.10 says, "For For it became Him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make, uh, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Hebrews 4.14 says that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That not only does Jesus Christ secure and, and abolish your sins as He satisfies the wrath of God and instructs you and gives you power and dominion over freedom from that bondage. But He says, because I suffered, I can now walk with you. That you're not only free from sin, but you're not alone in your sin. And that because He suffered, He, he sympathizes with you. That there is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, making a way of escape. And that you will not be attempted above um, your abilities. Why? Because now you're leaning on Him. Uh, Hebrews 5.2 says that He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since He Himself is also subject to weakness. That because He was weak, He can now come alongside you who are weak. God forbid any of us say, I cannot go to God because He doesn't understand. Like that, that, that is is the epitome of arrogance and pride and denies the very character, nature, and work of Jesus Christ and it's demonic. That's exactly what Jesus says to Peter as he rebukes him. Listen, Peter, that's demonic, right? Because when the establishment of the sufferings of Christ is culminated, um, one of the things that he purchases on your behalf um, is a sympathizing Savior, a high priest who now understands where you are and what you've went through. Why? Because he has been tested in all points like you. Had Christ not suffered, you would be alone in your sin. Had Christ not suffered, you would be alone eternally, dead in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. Um, there's eternal implications for that. Um, if in this life only we have hope in Christ. Imagine that phrase. I've heard, I've heard preachers get up and just sound super spiritual saying, you know, if there was no eternity afterwards, I would still serve Jesus Christ until the day that I died. Paul said he wouldn't. You know, he said, if in this life we only have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Right? If there is, but now Christ is risen from the dead and had become the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. That Christ purchased because of his resurrection, we can now bank 
uh, put it in the bank, that there's a resurrection from the dead and you're part of that and you'll receive a body of glory where you will be with Him and finally serve Him. Um, the pain, the suffering one day will end and we will no longer groan in our spirits, but we will be with Him and serve Him in ultimate glory and utter perfection. And had Christ not suffered, we would also have no example of suffering and no theology of suffering. Peter, he knows best about this. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21. For in this you were called. What, Peter? If you read the context, he's talking about suffering. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth, who was, when He was reviled, did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 4, 1. For as much then... As Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. What mind, Peter? The same mind of Christ who suffered for us in the flesh, for that he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Hereby we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our friends. 1 John 3.16 That had Jesus Christ not suffered, we would have no example of how to suffer in this life. All suffering is not good suffering. Peter argues that as well. Um, what good is it, he says, if men suffer for evil? But if you suffer for good, it is commendable in the sight of God. It brings glory to Him. And that's why James tells us, therefore count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That had Christ not suffered, we would not have an example of how to suffer, nor would we have any hope in suffering. We'd have no hope in suffering. First Peter, uh, that, that Jesus Christ gives rise and meaning to our suffering. Jesus Christ is the only reason that suffering ever means anything in this life. Christ gives rise and meaning to it. 1 Peter 2.20 says, For what credit is it then if you're beaten for your faults? You take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is among you. As though something is strange that happened to you. What he's saying is, he's saying people look around and they, they, they see you suffering and they think that's a strange thing. Don't think it's strange. This is the theology of the cross. This is the theology of Christianity. What do you say next, Peter? But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you rejoice, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. Blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, listen, He's blasphemed, but on your part, He's glorified. If anyone suffers as a Christian, He says in verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. In verse 19, therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good, so as to a faithful Creator. Peter, you don't understand what you're asking. You don't have a clue how demonic the thing is that you're asking for. Destroy the suffering of the Savior. Destroy the cross. And you destroy any hope in anything in the Christian life, in, in sanctification, in uh, success, or in, in, in victory over sin, in mortifying sins of the flesh, any hope in the things that you're encountering in the world today, and any, 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 any hope in any meaningful suffering in this world. You understand that if you, if you destroy this, you destroy it all, Peter. You know? And then he sees Jesus Christ high and holy and lifted up post-resurrection three days, and he changes his theology. 
you know? And I hope that that's an encouragement to you today um, to have a robust theology of the cross, to recognize that not only does God operate in the cross in this fashion, but Peter and Paul commend to us a theology of the cross for Christian living. And for you to know that I understand as much as anybody does because I'm human flesh, just solely saved by the grace of God, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, and wonder some days what God is doing and wonder some days whether or not any of this means anything at all. You know? Then on many days I wonder, God, what are you doing and why didn't you do it that way? (laughs) You know? Like I know what you can do. You know? How in the world can any Christian live um, except by faith, knowing as Peter did, knowing as Paul did, knowing as you do, knowing as I do, walking through the book of Mark, walking through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, reading the Scriptures, Old Testament, uh, going to Moses and Isaiah, the prophets and the Psalms, seeing Revelation written, knowing what God can do, and saying, you know, and wondering, where are you now? You know? Like, I know what you can do. And I look at the world, you know, and I see the chaos, and I see the election, and I see the virus, and I see philosophies coming out as a result of it, and I see things going in a direction that makes me, by by nature, very uncomfortable, you know? And it makes me want, like, God, I know what you can do, you know? Like, I read about you. I've seen you operate in my life. Like I see you stay the waters. I see the, you know, the, a, a raging storm just turn to glass. I see, I see ophthalmologists and doctors working all their life and all of their patients still die. Like, you know, but yours don't. You know? I see them going in day in, day out and practicing and doing certain things. And from a natural perspective, I'm like, like you see all the suffering in the world and you wonder what in the world's going on. You, know? you come to the Scriptures and you just repent because you, know, you recognize that um, God is very much at work. And suffering is very much meaningful. And suffering is not a, just a byproduct of a fallen nature. It's actually one of the primary ways in which God works throughout the world and establishes His kingdom. But that was His example. You know? And I know that we look around in America and I know that we look at our community and we look at our families and we see certain things and we just wish, like, let's just like, take it by storm. Like, that's fine. And let's do that. Let's do morally what's right and what God commands of, of us in the midst of it. But know this, you know? Like if we think that it's just going to come like uh, packaged in a Christmas present, you know, uh, via prime shipping and show up on our door and we're just going to slice it open and it's going to be God's gift to us, you better believe that that's now, that, that primarily that's not how it comes. You know, that, that, that God's influence in the world has been established throughout the centuries and in nations and communities and in churches. And I mean, anytime God has done much of anything in the world that was of any count and anything to be remembered and God is glorified in it and the church has prospered as a result of it, um, there has been a long trail of, of men who have given life and blood and death and, 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 a theo- and, a, and a living theology of the cross. Ask yourself this, if this is what you want, are you willing to die for it? Because Jesus Christ came into the world in accordance with the command of the Father willfully and in some sense says, Jesus, if you want that, every nation, tribe, and tongue, I'll give it to you. Are you willing to die for it? You know? What are you willing to give? And that's what we're going to get to in the next passage of Scripture. You know, biblical Christianity laid out um, as Jesus Christ takes the application and He says words like this when He says, whoever desires to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. He establishes a theology of the cross not only for Himself, but for all those that are in Him. You know? What do you want out of life? You know? Is it godly? Is, is it, are they godly desires? And what are you willing to give for it? Because Jesus Christ may just require 
your life. He may require much suffering. Maybe you're suffering today, you know. I want you to know there's meaning in it. And you can find joy and blessing in it. So much as as far as you suffer for Christ and you partake in the sufferings of Christ. But your suffering has meaning because Jesus Christ died, rose, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And if you don't understand that this morning and you're struggling with it, I encourage you to run to Christ and understand and try to, to, to and ask Him to give you eyes to see and ears to hear as to what He's accomplishing through that. And Peter tells us, that we may not even see. You look at other people will look in and they think it's strange. Why? Because you're so you're such a holy person, right? You're so righteous. You're so you're so faithful. You're so obedient. You know. And people look at it and they think it's strange because they think that those people should be exempt from that. But it is those people who know all too well that they are not exempt if the suffering Savior, the sinless Son of God, was not exempt. And the glories that can be accomplished through faithful, obedient patient suffering is immeasurable. And I don't think the volumes, all the volumes in all the world could contain what Christianity through suffering has accomplished in this life. You're suffering in some capacity. I encourage you to look at it through the cross to find some meaning in it today. And if you're not a believer and you're without God, I'd guarantee you don't understand suffering. You know, so many atheists I listen to, you know, they have so many arguments towards Christianity from creation to this to that to lack of evidence to uh, objective criteria. And I can tell you almost on all accounts, everyone, you listen to them long enough. And you know what it comes down to? It comes down to a philosophical issue of the problem of suffering and evil. They don't understand why babies are dying over in um, Africa, they don't understand why their mother had to go through what they did. They don't understand this or that. You get a theology of the cross, though, and you understand that God works all things together for those um, who are called, those who, are, who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. And He works out all those things for the glory of God and the good of man. I encourage you today to look to Christ if you're outside of Him and you're angry with God and you're bitter because of the suffering and of evil. Only in Christ will you ever find meaning in that. Only in Christ will it ever mean anything at all. You know? One of the glories that I have is that to walk throughout this day and throughout the week and think, man, that was a mess. Um, but to recount and to look back and think, man, what was God doing in that? What was God teaching me through that? What was God trying to, you know, what was the great teacher in the spirit of all the world trying to teach me through His theology of the cross? That's something that I constantly have to repent of. And maybe you do too. Why? Because I'm so astute. I'm so smart. I'm so intellectual. I'm so crafty. I'm so eloquent. I'm so much like Peter on most days. You know? The leader in the class. And I get some things right, and I think I got all things right. And God often has to rebuke me and say, that's not how I'm going to accomplish it this time, son. I need you to be okay with that. And not only do I need you to be okay with that and grit your teeth and bear it, I need you to glory in that. I need you to find hope in that. I need you to understand that. I need you to know that I'm there all alone, that I've not left you there alone in your sin. I need you to know that this is for good. This is for my glory. And how else in the world does anyone bear it? How else in the world does anyone make it through things that we have to go on in this world? You know? If not without Christ, I don't understand. 
I would have came to the end of myself. I would have given up. I would be on medications or I would have ended my life long ago with some of the depravity and the anxiety and the depression of this. Without Christ, um, I don't know how people in this world make it. And I think that's why so many people don't, you know, because they cannot find meaning or good or hope in the suffering. I beg you to look to Christ today and find all of those things because they're there. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the blessing that we have in Christ. Father, in the midst of a fallen and a perverse world, we often look at the the nature of ourselves and the curse, sin, disease, cancer, heartache, and different things as an enemy of God, but they're not. Father, we recognize that the fall in and of itself was a blessing and the grace itself because it teaches us how inept we are outside of Christ, how much we need You, that in weakness we find You, in a lack of strength we find You, that in ignorance we find You. <laughs> you know, that's why so many, that's why healthy men don't go to a physician, um, but sick men do. And that's why men and women who come to the end of themselves find Christ and others don't. Help us to abandon the pride. Help us to abandon the theology of glory. To think that we're able and, and competent and, and, um, and have the ability, Father, to find our way to come to you and to establish any form of righteousness apart from you. God, we don't. Father, help us to glory in the cross. Help us to glory in suffering. Help us to glory in the sense of a, of, of a flaw. God, that would teach us and point us to a Savior. God, help us to glory in Christ, uh, who would be one who would go before us and who would, who would become like us in all points, Father, so that one day um, He could extend to us a righteousness not of our own. He would be, he would, the, the wrath of God, the justice would be established, Father, upon His head, not ours. And as we come to Him by faith, not only do we receive salvation eternally, Father, but we also receive a Savior who comes alongside us and gives us ability to overcome our sins and our inabilities and our, and our failures and our mistakes, Father, we find, we find righteousness and holiness and acceptance in Him and in Him alone as we stand before the Father because we stand in Him. Father, help us to find meaning in so much because we find our sufferings in Christ and we suffer along with Him, God, and we rejoice in that because we understand that You upbuild kingdom through that. God, teach us this in the midst of chaos and decay and darkness, Father. Help us to keep our heads high and lifted up, not in arrogance, but as we look to You, Father, and recognize that um, if all the world fails and all goes awry, we still have Christ. Therefore, we've lost nothing and we've gained it all. And what else is there to gain than we've already gained? And what is there to lose, Father, when we've already gained anything? Nothing, Father. Nothing. We thank You for that. Because it's all your accomplishment and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.